0: Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Our opening song is Stacked Crooked by the New Pornographers from the 2005 album Twin Cinema. And likewise, our show today is titled Stacked Crooked, or Renting Rooms in the Humanities Ghetto. Over the past decade, academic labor has become increasingly precarious, with tenure-track positions diminishing rapidly and the pool of adjunct lecturers growing intensely. Compensation for graduate students who double as teaching assistants or TAs has dropped significantly or stagnated, while tuition and additional fees, as well as general class sizes and teaching responsibilities, have climbed steadily. A crisis in housing has driven UC Santa Cruz grad students into an extreme rent burden, demanding upwards of 70% of their already meager paychecks to cover monthly rent. With Santa Cruz being one of the most expensive cities in the United States to live in, and with wages for graduate workers at the university falling well below the average cost of living in the city, UCSC students are often foregoing basic necessities just to get by. To remedy this and to fight for a life of fairness and basic dignity, UCSC graduate students went on strike, demanding a cost of living adjustment, or COLA, for all students at the university. Beginning in December of last year, as a small-scale grading strike, where graduate students and TAs refused to submit grades for the fall quarter, The UC Santa Cruz Wildcat Strike has since developed into a statewide initiative to demand a cost-of-living adjustment for all students and workers across the UC system. On February 10, graduate students at UCSC voted to extend the strike from a grading strike to a full-scale teaching strike, refusing their work as TAs and grading assistants until the UC administration, headed by Janet Napolitano, former Secretary of Homeland Security, makes good on their demands. The administration thus far has been silent and instead has made active attempts to break the strike, employing methods of intimidation, arresting several nonviolent strikers, and most recently firing at least 80 graduate students from their teaching position, throwing them further into financial burden. But look closer. Which graduate students are struggling the most? It's not those who study war or chemistry or politics or business or biology, rather it's the humanities students, those who investigate and critique those other methods of structuring our society. Our show today is in two parts. First, segment producer Cole Nelson speaks with Yulia Gilichinskaya, a Ph.D. candidate in the Film and Digital Media Department at UC Santa Cruz. She's one of the nearly 80 students who were fired from their teaching positions on February 22nd by the UC administration simply for seeking a path for negotiation. Gilichinskaya has been deeply involved in organizing the Wildcat Strike. And then I'll speak with Michael Buravoy, a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and secretary of the Berkeley Faculty Association, the so called conscience of the faculty senate, which is involved in joint governance with the college administration. Buravoy has appeared on Interchange in the past to discuss the business ideology at large in the public university. And now, Stacked Crooked, renting rooms in the humanities ghetto on Interchange on WFHB. <laughs>
1: I am a two candidate in film and digital media. Um, My rent burden is 70%. I pay 70% of my paycheck on rent. Um, I had to move four times in the three and a half years that I've lived in Santa Cruz. And my housing situation is in no way exceptional. It's rather the rule. Most of my friends pay 50 to 70% of their paycheck on rent. Uh, Some of them live in substandard housing and cannot move out because they cannot find alternative housing. Um, Some have developed health problems because they had to live in moldy House.
2: So that's why we're a strike yeah yeah I know you are one of the many students who just recently uh, this past Friday um, were fired the administration delivered uh, notices of intent to essentially terminate uh is it it's over 80 graduate students now from their positions as tas that's
1: Yes, that's correct. So 54 people received the official notice of intent and just about 30 received an email with one sentence um, saying you are not going to be considered for future employment. Uh, that has to do with teaching.
2: Do you know why there were the the two sort of directions, the official letter and then this um, much more scant email that... Students received?
1: Yeah, in my understanding, it has to do with the nuance of the contract of our employment for people who were already in written form promised employment, who already accepted positions for their spring. employment. They had to be fired officially. The university had to deliver the notice of intent and so that's the number that the university is using, 54, while in fact other people were still promised teaching positions and were recommended for teaching positions already and they're just not going to be hired for them. But the university is using the official number to sort of diminish um how many people actually got fired, how many people are affected, and how many people are still withholding all grades and still actively participating in the strike.
2: And so this number of graduate students who have been fired is it's is it directly corresponding to who is still withholding grades, or is it just sort of an arbitrary decision on who uh who is receiving these letters and who isn't? I would
1: say the general contours of this number correlate to how many people are still withholding full grades, with a few exceptions.
2: So, considering that, considering the administration's sort of retaliation in in, in the form of um, firing these students, can you sort of speculate what their logic is there? Um, it's obviously a scare tactic, but it yes. really has done nothing to benefit them, and completely the opposite. They seem completely absent from the table in which to negotiate with the Wildcat strikers and are rather completely undermining that table in the first place.
1: My sense of their strategy is every time Um, They come up with a move. It's a move exclusively to break the strike. Not a single move was made towards a good faith bargaining, a good faith negotiation. We haven't seen a single proposal that would actually start addressing the issues that is at the core of why we're on strike. So we have seen discipline. We have seen heavy policing. We have seen now termination of employment. Um, we have seen a small bribe, so the housing stipend that the chancellor announced uh, is going to be available this year is only available for those students who don't participate in strike activities. My read of what they were thinking when they decided to terminate strikers was, yes, yeah, to intimidate and to scare us and to break the strike. But clearly, that didn't work. Every every time they make a move, it backfires and we escalate, and now, and now, since determination. It definitely escalated and went statewide.
2: And a lot of ways, uh, the, the Cola for All campaign has highlighted the fact that this is clearly a statewide issue concerning housing rights and housing justice more generally, but specifically with the UC system, how the, the UC system is one of the largest landlords in California. And clearly the largest employer in California. And because of that, it seems the COLA campaign is really calling for their accountability in that role. And so I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the COLA for All campaign in this broader context of housing rights and housing justice across California. Um and how it relates to this.
1: Yeah, I just want to start by saying that COLA for All is a semi-autonomous organizing collective here in Sonic Rouge uh, that actually imagines COLA for all students and all workers at UCSD and beyond. So COLA for All doesn't just mean COLA for all graduate students. COLA for All is a group of organizers who work in solidarity and with undergraduate students, with service workers, with staff, um, and think about what a COLA for all of those groups would look like. Um, so what happened with the strike going statewide, the UAW, our union, uh, sort of just took the name COLA for All and applied it to all UC campuses, thinking about COLA for All graduate students. So I just want to push back against that name. Because I think we're not when we talk about statewide strike, we're not calling it that. But in terms of thinking about uh, rent burdens and you see holding UC responsible for paying its workers and students enough to live where they work, I think that's really important that the strike goes statewide. Because in California and especially in coastal California, we're not the only campus that is dealing with rent burden. Santa Barbara, UCLA, San Diego, San Francisco, Berkeley are facing exactly the same um, housing rent burden, sometimes higher, sometimes slightly lower. And even campuses that are inland, their workers are still underpaid. They're still rent burdened. So we're trying to expand our um, housing justice analysis and to remedy it statewide.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about the striking graduate student teaching assistants at the University of California in Santa Cruz and their fight for a cost-of-living adjustment to offset the extreme rent burden of housing in one of the most expensive cities in the country. Our guest for this segment is fired T.A. Yulia
2: Gilichinskaya. Can you give a little bit of history of the development of of Coal for All? in association with the strike, but also beyond.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, cola for all is, uh, is a collective that originated in Santa Cruz that um, started leading really exciting direct actions from day one of the grading strike starting in December. Um, They, on day one of the strike, they sort of had um, central action every day of the first week of the strike, and they started off in the library where they joined together with undergraduate students and graduate students, and they called this action not eating as usual. And they collected testimonies about how much students had to eat that day, how how many hours they slept, and how many hours of work they were intending to do that day or have already done, and trying to collect the data, not for any systemic analysis, but just to demonstrate to people who are hungry, to people who are tired, to people who are underslept and overexploited, that they're not alone, that the issue is systemic, that it's not just graduate students, that our undergraduate students, are hungry and they cannot afford food. That they're running on three to four hours of sleep and they have only eaten a bagel. So that action sort of demonstrated how systemic the issue of food insecurity, of housing insecurity, is. And it sort of opened up the idea of how do we feed all our hungry students? And Call for All, starting on day three of uh, the strike, started liberating dining halls. They started uh, announcing on social media that students are welcome to come to the dining hall and not swipe their dining hall cards, that food was free. And it was sort of an homage to uh, the free breakfast program by Black Panther Party. And so there were multiple dining hall liberations that fed thousands of undergraduate, graduate students and workers at the university. And when Berkeley started organizing in solidarity with us, but also for their own call They started off with the dining hall, which is not lost on us, which is definitely um, inspired by the action taken by Call of Parole. So I would say it's not a statewide group, but um, the actions that they're taking are so impactful that they have a sort of reverberative effect statewide.
2: Fairly recently, um, from the likes of Senator Bernie Sanders and Boots Riley have shown support and come out in solidarity of the uh, UC Santa Cruz strike, but as well as um, come out against Janet Napolitano and the the inhumanity that she's showing in regards to the the situation across the the UC system. And first, I'm I'm just curious, what is it like to be a part of a strike um, in the 21st century that is having that sort of recognition and is now at that scale?
1: That is really interesting because my my first. Understanding of a wildcat strike is, wow, it's something really marginal and something that doesn't have union's recognition and union's um, authorization. So it is like a small resistant movement, but small doesn't mean not powerful. And so I started off in December with sort of that understanding of, a, of what a wildcat strike is, but it continues to amaze me. Just how much power was built and how much recognition it's gaining, and how truly rare a wildcat strike and a successful one is historically. It is really exciting to be a part, of, a part of this movement. We actually, we've been talking to people in the UK who are a part of the EU strike. We've been talking to French workers who are on strike. Um, we have been trying to communicate with protesters in Hong Kong, in Chile. And in Lebanon to learn about um, direct action sort of strategies and tactics that they've employed. And we're trying to think about this strike in terms of larger history in labor and in education. And I I want to know that we're not the first wildcat strike and not the first strike in education in this country. We're definitely a part of a wave. Oakland, LA teachers, Chicago, uh, West Virginia teachers who went on a wildcat strike two years ago successfully, right? I think we're picking up the energy that is felt in the air that teachers are taking control of their working conditions and demanding better and pushing back against austerity measures that have been imposed on education for decades now. I think having, having this recognition and having this strike gone statewide, it's really pointing to the dire condition of higher education, of just how widespread the issue is. That in higher education, most faculty, most, uh, most jobs are not tenure track anymore. None of us expect to get any sort of job security when we're done with our PhD. So we go from one insecure position to another. And it's not just the case with us. It's the case across the country.
0: It's time for a break. This is Testament to Youth in Verse from 2003 off the album Electric Version by the new pornographers. Stay with us for more on the UC Santa Cruz Cola for All strike when Interchange returns on WFHB. Maybe it's not alright. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is stacked crooked on the extreme rent burden faced by graduate student teaching assistants at UC Santa Cruz, a not uncommon problem in many university towns. We continue with Cole Nelson's conversation with fired grad student Yulia Gilichinskaya. The
2: bells ring. No, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no
2: Okay. So I was, I, I, I'm i interested to talk to you a little more about the sort of on the ground situation in Santa Cruz, um, what it's looking like actually at, at the strike. Could you take us through a, a typical day on the picket line in Santa Cruz?
1: Yeah. Um, so at, Typical picket line would consist of um, people picketing with signs and walking across the intersection at the two entr- two main entrances to campus, um, trying to tell the cars that there's a strike um, and encourage them not to cross the picket line, but letting cars through if they have to go in. However, city buses, UPS. Um, are not crossing the picket line. So all of the students who take city bus to go on campus have to get off at the entrance and take, um, we have a bus that runs inside the campus. So they have to, all of the students have to go from one bus stop where they get off to take another bus to go to their classes. So in that moment, there are strikers at the bus stop with flyers, with um, some information about the strike, trying to talk to the students and answer any questions they may have. So that's, that's actually an interesting moment to meet the people who don't necessarily join us at the picket line. But they may have questions um, and they don't always know what's going on because we don't have a way of um, emailing the entire campus community. And so the strike is sort of, um, you know, one, you see it. Until you learn about it from sort of word of mouth. So we're trying to reach as many people and give them truthful, on-the-ground update and information as we can. And then um, every time at the, at the picket line, we have food, we have coffee, we have music. Often we have live music. We've had multiple performers. Um, including uh, an East Coast band called Mutual Benefits, give a performance at the picket line. We have teaching. We have speakers. A poet, Fred Moten, um, visited the picket the other day and spoke to the strikers. We have uh, volunteers from Food Not Bomb cook and serve food on multiple occasions. So there's actually a feeling of, I don't want to reduce it to say that it feels like a music festival, but it feels like kind of a militant music festival <laughs> in a way um, that is that is often interrupted by militant direct action where we take to the street. And we disrupt the flow of traffic and we take the intersection and we effectively block all of the entrances to the university. Um, so when, when it's not that, when we're not on the street, yeah, there's a lot of teaching. There's a lot of um, community building. We have um, a free childcare care at the picket that is running every day, that is run by an undergraduate collective. Um, and just to see all of that has been really, really incredible. There's also um, a lot of undergrad organizing that's going on that, If it wasn't for the undergrads, we would never be able um, to pull off any of the actions and any of the shutdowns. So there is an undergrad collective that's called the People's Coalition that includes organizers and activists from various groups across campus that are doing an incredible job of organizing in solidarity with us.
2: As much as possible, I've been trying to uh, just tune in and watch, watch recordings and videos of what's going on along the picket because it is this really kind of musical atmosphere where you have you have chants and you have cheers and you have somebody bringing a drum set and bands playing um and there's this absolute lively nature to it that is is really indicative of something of of not only an educational process that is new um and enlivened but a a way of living with each other and showing appreciation and solidarity amongst each other that not that helps the strike along, but also gives it this atmosphere that it's something else. It's really beautiful.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great way to describe it. But, you know, there, there is a sense that we build something that we want to expand. We build something that we want to see at a university we want to be a part of in the world we want to be a part of. We are building ways of being together and learning together and sharing meals and dancing and making art and building community and being in solidarity with each other, learning about each other's struggles and being in struggle together. I've never in my life had such sense of a community that I do now with the strike that I do now at the biggest. Like it is truly something incredible that most of us have never felt before.
2: The most often experience it seems of graduate students, but also especially my experience of living in Santa Cruz is one of being a having this alienated uh, feeling impressed upon you because of how difficult it is just to live and survive in a place like Santa Cruz.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about the striking graduate student teaching assistants at the University of California in Santa Cruz and their fight for a cost-of-living adjustment to offset the extreme rent burden of housing in one of the most expensive cities in the country. Our guest for this segment is fired T.A.
2: Yulia Gilichinskaya. One of the most powerful images that I've seen circulating from the Wildcat strike um, At UCSC, is this image of a homemade banner sprawled over the main entrance sign at the base of campus that says, Become ungovernable? I'm tying that to larger, sort of larger trends that we're seeing of mass action and protests against various forms of neoliberal austerity and neoliberal rule that is diminishing kind of basic human dignities and basic human rights. you were mentioning from Lebanon to Chile and how the strike is trying to start conversations with those movements. Um, I was curious just in a in a broad general way how you see the the Wildcat strike in association with these various mass actions against these forms of neoliberal austerity.
1: Yeah, I think I actually I thought you were going to mention the the picture of a faculty member in full regalia um, standing between the cops mm-hmm. and the students. and I, That
2: is an incredible picture, yeah.
1: I just want to mention that because I feel like I haven't talked about faculty support, but I, I'm going to try to tie into the ideal ungovernability. Um, I think this, this sense of alienation and isolation that you were talking about is definitely exacerbated by the housing crisis. In Santa Cruz and is definitely one that's felt, uh, globally. It's definitely, uh, one of the byproducts of neoliberal economy that, um, that makes everyone feel isolated, feel in competition with each other, feel, um, like they're not enough, like they need to work harder and still not make enough to survive. And feel guilty and somehow inadequate for that. And so I think that global condition is, um, is in crisis. And I think we're seeing all of these protests globally pushing back against, um, neoliberalism and sort of tearing apart its glossy cover and showing the crisis we're in. Um, the, the really social, economic and political crisis, crisis of thought. That is limited by your own body or your family, your small family unit that doesn't have a sense of anything bigger that goes beyond that. And so I think these global protests where people come together and build their power. And demonstrate that um, we are the ones who run these institutions. We are the ones who have the power to change um, our situations and to change the world, really. Um, it's really incredible to see. And I'm hoping um, that we are able to build more community and solidarity internationally, not just among um, people associated with education, but with everyone who is associated with labor, with everyone who um, who is poor, who is working class, um, to work against the conditions that make us poor and make working class uh, people live in poverty. And, you know, in Santa Cruz and across the country, we started building coalition with um, poor people's campaign, with a homeless union, with um, would not bomb. So it's. I think this strike is really expansive, and it doesn't end where the university does. Um, and it has. It has a potential, yeah, to build to build that that sense of community that I was talking about with um, other people who are struggling, who are suffering from those conditions of alienation and isolation and try to expand this community and build power together.
2: What's it looking like going forward? In terms of a general a general sense, how do you see the strike growing from here? Um, but also in terms of tactical moves um, being made by the Santa Cruz workers, the larger com- UC community, as as well as the larger working community throughout California. Um, what are sort of efforts that are, are being made and practical actions that, that are being planned for the future days to come?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's it's kind of hard um, to talk about concrete actions um, because some of them are sort of planned secretively. Um, so we are going to continue to strike. We are going to continue conversations with our students about their material conditions. We are going to start and continue conversations with staff. Um, at the UC, who some of them are not unionized, but most of whom are definitely underpaid, um, we are going to work to grow statewide. We're seeing COLA campaigns on all 10 UC campuses now with different sort of capacity of uh, Their organizations, but everyone growing by, by a minute. Um, and we are going to continue conversations nationwide with different universities and different organizations and thinking about um, how to build community and solidarity across the country. Um, but I think we are going to push the statewide union to, um, to authorize the strike and actually go and strike um, that is sanctioned by the union. And I think, I want to think about it as a massive victory. And I want to think about it as a massive victory that we already achieved. Because for the statewide union to adopt the call of framework, to even conceive of a, a sanctioned strike in contract that is statewide, I think that's incredible. And that's definitely something that we pushed them towards by showing the power that we're able to build on the ground. And so I think part of the... Part of the tactic and part of like the work that we're doing now is making sure that the bargaining team that the statewide convenes to bargain with the UC um, is comprised of people on the ground and it's comprised of santa cruz strikers because even if uaw statewide sanctioned a strike they cannot bargain the end of a wildcat strike they didn't sanction in the first place so the the power to end a wildcat strike lies exclusively with the strikers and so we are going to stay on strike until the administration gives us an offer and we ourselves vote on it and until then we strike
0: It's time for another break. This is Mutiny, I Promise You. Another from the new pornographers. Stay with us for more of Renting Rooms and the Humanities Ghetto when Interchange returns on WFHB. is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Stacked Crooked, Renting Rooms in the Humanities Ghetto. We're going to now turn to a conversation with UC Berkeley sociology professor Michael Buravoy. It was recorded last Tuesday. We begin with the uniqueness of the strike and the precarious nature of laboring for the university. And
3: here is
2: the moment it turned into. And here is the moment it turned into.
3: This is, this is something quite new. Mm-hmm. It's not new yet, quite some time. Um, so it's been bubbling up because graduate students are indeed finding it more and more difficult to survive here. And of course that has to be seen in the context of the changing character of the university. We've talked about this together before. Um, mm-hmm. one of the features of that is that the graduate students um, face an ever uh, more precarious future. They invest a huge amount of money and time, years, um, in their education, and they are not sure that they can get a stable job. And then in in some disciplines, um, in the humanities and some social sciences, um, there is a uh, a two-track exit from the university. One is to actually get a tenure-track professorship, which is what they all aspire to, which is why they are here. But there is a second track, which is towards the lecturer uh, status, which is basically a teaching position, which is an insecure position and very much more poorly paid. And there are more and more lecturers and relatively fewer tenure track positions.
0: Right, these are at will so, positions.
3: Yes, so they're basically these are positions. So if you're very lucky, I mean the conditions of lecturers here on UC campuses is actually much better than it is at other other universities, though it's much worse than the tenure track. But nevertheless, so here on this campus, a lecturer who is full time, that means teaching six courses, um, will get per course something like nine to twelve thousand dollars. So they're earning seventy, 000, eighty thousand dollars a year. Now that is uh, and, and they they can get uh, some sort of uh, after six years, they go through an excellence review and they can then um, have some sort of security of employment. Now, um, well, some sort of stabi- I should say stability of employment, not security. Um, and so they can be displaced only under certain conditions. So that here, here is it's, the conditions are pretty good. And if you're teaching more than half time or half time or more, three or more courses, then you get health insurance, which is very important. Um, so anyway so that's the situation here but there are other places in in the country where where lecturers are receiving three thousand dollars four thousand dollars a course and they have to sew together courses from one university from multiple universities and they sort of uh, they are commuting between universities or colleges and they never know what how many courses which courses where they will be teaching the following semester so you know, that's so there's a very great variety of conditions of existence of these lectures, but everywhere they are actually inferior to the conditions of the tenure track faculty. The number of whom are actually, I believe, shrinking right. nationally.
0: Yeah, they're definitely shrinking. Um, the this is an interesting dilemma. Obviously, we we're talking about this in in ways um, um, that we would, I, I suppose, most labor situations. But there's a, a a difference here, I suppose. Right, the idea that these are the the actual uh, educators of so many students uh, that if you're if you're you know praising a particular university or or wanting a particular situation uh, experience. At college or a particular kind of education, uh, it kind of starts with these these graduate students, right?
3: Absolutely. This is really that's Doug. That's an absolutely key point. That I I, between eighty and ninety percent of face to face teaching is done by graduate student instructors on this campus. So we have a big lecture. So I have a lecture, shall we say, of two hundred and twenty students, and I will have um, five or six graduate student instructors who actually do the sort of teaching of undergraduates in sections that are around 20 students and they meet twice a week. And that's where the that's where the real learning takes place. And many of these graduate student instructors are actually, um, which was the sort of people who are actually going on strike at Santa Cruz, are actually very devoted teachers and will actually spend more time teaching and doing all this all extra work that they're not paid for, um, like writing letters of recommendation, Um, Because they have a sense of vocation as a teacher, they do. They spend more than the twenty hours that they're paid for. So, um, yeah, these are these are devoted people, and they are just not. Their conditions of existence have have deteriorated with the rising costs, particularly of housing. um, That the campus sort of recognises, but has not really acknowledged. Um, So this is a this is a very very important strike, in my view. Um, draws attention to the plight of graduate students. But not only graduate students, undergraduates are facing the the similar, obviously the similar rising rents. And that's a problem that university is also facing. Undergraduates are having to share two, three, four people to a room. Some undergraduates are actually homeless, living on campus, uh, in in classrooms, in lecture halls. Um, Not very many, but definitely some. um, Having to skimp on food, Um, And increasingly, we're finding ourselves to be a commuter campus because people can't afford the rents immediately around uh, uh, the campus itself. And so have to commute from larger distances where rents may be lower. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB.
0: Today's show centers on the UC Santa Cruz grad student strike, a teacher's strike, for a much needed cost of living adjustment on poverty level incomes to offset sky high rents. Our guest, UC Berkeley Sociology Professor Michael Borovoy, questions whether there's faculty and student solidarity across academic disciplines. And Michael, you mentioned at the beginning that, that Thursday was would have some, some, something else be happening on Thursday, the, this, uh, the, a call to uh, a larger strike or, uh, um, and uh, to include faculty as well. Do you have a sense for how that might go? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, it's a call um, to cancel classes um, and join picket lines. Uh, it's a call made by the organizers of Cola for All um, across all the UC campuses. So it will be a simultaneous strike on Thursday. And, you know, honestly, I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, there were a lot of people at the meeting meeting. Last yesterday evening, um, as often happens, and has happened at Santa Cruz, the strike action is often concentrated in certain departments. Um, so, humanities, feminist studies, African American studies, sociology, geography, literature, English. I mean, these are the sorts of departments that usually have strongholds of. Uh, 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 of protesting students. Now, when you go over to engineering or the business school, well, then there's less uptake. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, And of course, in the professional schools, um, people have much better employment prospects in the future. And at the same time, they just want to get on with it. Um, it's, It's a very different atmosphere than in the uh, humanities and social sciences.
0: Well, that's an important thing to talk about. Maybe if you don't, if you don't mind, uh, it's an interesting difference uh, in terms of the type of student or the type of career one is going to go into. You mentioned the strikers and these, uh, the situation there is 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 being faced generally by humanities graduate students. Um, uh, we we run into this term constantly: humanities and the death of the humanities and the problem with humanities and the lack of uh, job prospects in the humanities you know, yada, yada, yada. So, uh, but here you, you have a very clear, almost a clear dividing line between who is going to achieve a, a professional career or a career that might earn some money versus this track of education, which appears to be a real dead end
3: for everybody. Undergraduates are concerned about their future too, right? Right, right. In this particular labor market. And so there are fewer undergraduates that are Going into the humanities, and so their majors are shrinking, and everybody well, on this campus anyway. And engineering is just bursting at the seams, and, and can't contain the demand for their courses. Uh, the business school has managed to regulate entry into the the MBA program as well as the undergraduate program in business. So, um, and law school, well, they that uh, they are able to sort of control entry. Um, but so, yes, yeah, so I, I uh, this is this is the dilemma. So the so now that and this university, uh, this campus is having to think about how to allocate funds because it is short of funds. Right. There is a, this, a withdrawal of funds from the state legislature. So it's and it's supposedly compensated by, on the one hand, increased fees. And those are now being frozen for a number of years. Um, and on the other hand, uh, attempts at revenue. Uh, uh, increases in revenue from various sources and one of those sources are are creation of new programs and of course it is certain parts of the university that is able to create new programs and increasingly the budget is being allocated on the student credit hours that a a given department um, uh, uh, is responsible for and so a student starts moving from the humanities to social sciences, to engineering, to wherever, then they are going to suffer cutbacks in the revenue they receive from the university according to the new rules of budget allocation. So they are fighting for their lives almost. Um, uh, well, they're certainly fighting for the, for the maintenance of the size of the department and the resources to which they have been accustomed. I can
2: never place the name with the face.
0: It's time for our final break. This is Breaking the Law by the New Pornographers, Off Mass Romantic. When we come back, Michael Burrovoy details a bit of the history of graduate student labor organizing in the UC system. Stay with us. For our final segment of Renting Rooms in the Humanities Ghetto, UC Berkeley Sociology Professor Michael Buravoy identifies the roles played by the United Auto Workers and the University of California Office of the President, or UCOP, in the way UC Santa Cruz has denied grad students a cost-of-living adjustment, keeping teaching labor burdened by extreme rents. or shrinking uh, class sizes, shrinking uh, students interested, not even to say they're not interested in this particular subject or discipline, but that there's no future for them in terms of income, in terms of a career, in terms of ways to live the life that we're asked to live. So, you know, we continue to confront these these issues that are self perpetuating a lot of ways because as they as they continue to shrink as you say they must move into other disciplines if they're going to be educated at all they have to choose engineering they have to choose marketing they have to choose these things that uh shape our world then we are shaped without those humanities disciplines and or they get uh, sh- you know some kind of uh subsidiary track of you know business ethics Uh, And that's all your humanities right there, right there, right there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we just keep shrinking the kinds of thinkers that might right. be humanities thinkers and turning them more and more into engineering, uh, business, marketing, entrepreneurs, etc. This is not just a fight for education at, at UC or uh, against rents necessarily. It's a, it's a fight for a kind of human thinking, right? A, a kind of human being.
3: Well, it's a crit- I mean it's a critical historical perspective on where society is going, and you know, and increasingly. If if the trends that, I, that we both agree are so sort of very present in universities continue, then we will get people who have a much more blinkered and homogeneous view about where we are. That can be very problematic for the future of this society or any other society, for that matter. Um, the thinkers of this world, the critical thinkers who, who draw on history, who draw on you know how things have happened in different parts of the world, both positive and negative, um experiments and experiences these these are sort of being pushed aside in favor of all sort of a, of a sort of short-term immediacy um, and, um, and and a sort of narrowing of people's concerns to their individual careers but that is the consequence of the excuse the word capitalist world in which we live I mean, in which precarity has become the, the sort of s- as symptomatized, is, sort of exemplifies the, the, the world that these students and others are entering.
0: How does the UAW come into this?
3: Well, there was a struggle through the 80s and 90s for the recognition of a graduate student union, and they eventually won. There were lots of struggles and um every year and eventually the university caved in and said okay we'll give you recognition and the students for whatever reason chose uaw which at the time was a union the united auto workers uh of america they, they were obviously in a desperate situation because they were losing members hand over fist because of the closure of manufacturing and uh, car assembly plants and so Um, they had a strategy of trying to recruit um, from other sectors of the economy and they chose they were quite active in the area of graduate students Um, Mm. so that's how it happened, that was about I don't know, 95, 96, something like that and um, so the situation now is they are UAW, you know, it's a sort of bureaucratic organization like most trade unions, big trade unions and they negotiated a contract with The University of California, it was ratified over the summer. What happened is that there was grumblings from many graduate students, but in the end, they got the vote that they wanted. Um, Some people think, well, anyway, they got the vote that they wanted, the UAW did, and the contract was ratified, but there there were lots of dissenting voices. There was a concentration of dissenting voices in Santa Cruz. They were the most disgruntled about, which is a reflection both of the cost of living there, but also a perhaps a more critical, uh, a more critical campus, a more dissenting campus than any of the others. And so they decided, the students there decided that they would engage in sort of a open struggle uh, against the administration, uh, independent of the UAW, um, for cola for Cost of living adjustment, which they said it would be fourteen hundred dollars, and the one resource that they have to bargain with the administration was the withholding of grades, which they did. Which in fact they had tr- this, ad- this sort of thing had happened in the nineties, um, but they but students never actually had to withhold grades for at least more than twenty four hours, and there was some sort of negotiated compromise. Um, um, this was before there was a union. and it's the first time as far as I know, that anybody, any group of students has carried this so far. So they carried it oh, and this was in they began December 9th. They didn't ha- they, they withheld grades and they continued to hold wage all over uh, until, well, for these eight, for these 90 until until well, the last few days.
0: You're listening to interchange on WFHB. Today's show centers on the UC Santa Cruz grad student strike, a teacher's strike, for a much-needed cost-of-living adjustment on poverty-level incomes to offset sky-high rents. Our guest, UC Berkeley sociology professor Michael Buravoy, questions whether there's faculty and student solidarity across academic disciplines.
3: The problem is this. UAW in a sense, signs a contract with the University of California, and that outlaws strikes. And so the UAW cannot be involved in proposing and supporting any wildcat strike. So they are very careful to instruct their local organizers um, in departments not to get involved in wildcat strikes, whether it's at Santa Cruz or anywhere else, because they would then fear that an unfair labor practice would be and filed against them by UCOP. And actually, that is what happened 10 days ago. UCOP filed an unfair labour practice that actually UAW had been had been actually supporting Wildcat Strike. I don't know what evidence they have for this. But anyway, that's made UAW very jittery. Seeing the success of the Santa Cruz struggles and seeing how they were spreading over the last three weeks... The UAW, about the same time, tried to reopen negotiations with the university. And, of course, the university said, you hey, must be out of your bloody mind. You know, we're not going to reopen negotiations. We've signed a contract with you. We re-open, re- reopen negotiations and we have to do with every union. We would never do that. That would be setting a terrible precedent. So they said no. But you can see, already see the UAW was trying to catch up with the momentum um, that had been generated by the Santa Cruz uh, graduate students that was actually beginning to, um, to sort of spread across the campuses, the other UC campuses. So anyway, they took out this unfair labor practice, the, the UCOP. And so then um, the UAW turns around and takes out an unf- um, and files an unfair labor practice against UCOP saying that they are actually negotiating with students around this COLA when they should be negotiating with the UAW. Now, I understood what they were up to, though other people didn't seem to agree with me, that they this would give them the opportunity to declare a strike. And in fact, that is what is turning out. So the UAW, seeing the spread of the struggles across the campuses, in a sense, is fighting for the support of students through now saying that it might actually call for a strike vote. And it can do so because it has filed this unfair labor practice. But they've got to demonstrate that it is the unfair labor practice that is generating the strike and not something else, which is of course going to be tricky legal. So anyway, so that's what's happening. So the UAW is in a caught in a very difficult situation. Because this these striking students who um many of them not very keen on what the UAW did in terms of the ratification of the contract, are keeping their distance from the UAW, though they recognize that when and if the university comes to the table and begins to negotiate around the COLA, it has to be the UAW that does the negotiation. So they, everybody recognizes that. So anyway, this is the sort of very fluid situation we're in with a sort of, a, as I say, indeterminate future um and 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 there's a there's a lot of tension around the relations between UAW and the 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 organizers of Cola for All. Mm. Well
0: uh, Michael, is there a recognition there uh, that this is an untenable situation in terms of these living environments uh, even in in these other departments, or are there clearly successful departments that all their students also don't have any problem living where they want to live so is, right. is right. you know is this a real division in in the yep. university so that there isn't support across across campus across yep. students across faculty because of this exactly. this actual change yeah
3: yes, so actually there are- there's a differential rewards for being a graduate student both in terms of their future careers and in the terms of the pay that they receive Mm -hmm. i don't know actually how deep that difference is um but yes it it certainly exists and in many departments teaching is not as important as uh, being a graduate student instructor or a teaching assistant is not as important as actually being a research assistant and those salaries may be higher in the STEM fields, in engineering and so on. Um, Yeah. So, yes. So what is very interesting is that we have a relatively limited understanding of actually what are the differential conditions across campus. But you're right, they do exist.
0: Is there anything in particular that we didn't touch on that you'd like to say?
3: It is a tragic situation. Uh, Yesterday, the Faculty in the fog, in the faculty organizing group at Santa Cruz sent a letter to Newsom seeing seeing every chancellor and so on and so forth, asking Newsom to intervene um, in this dispute and calling on Newsom to get the UCOP, which is the University of California Office of the President, that is the administrative body that does the negotiation together with the regents, to telling them that they have to negotiate so that this is the faculty telling the governor of the state to intervene and get the administration of the university to negotiate with the students i think the faculty are hoping that some sort of negotiated compromise can emerge from this because if not then things look very bleak
0: that's our show We'll close with the final song from the new pornographers. This is Two Wild Homes. Thanks to Yulia Galichinskaya and Michael Buravar for helping us understand the way capitalism in higher education pushes its ideology outside the classroom by bankrupting some workers while supporting others, depending on their choice of discipline. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Segment one of today's show was produced by Cole Nelson. Cade Young is our executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHP.